is a speaker meeting, and um, the speaker tonight is someone that I would definitely consider one of my best friends in the program, um, and I think probably a lot of people in this room would consider him the same thing, because that's just the type of guy he is. Um, he's a friend to all, and he has a really kind heart, so I'm really thankful that he said that he was going to tell his story, because I know, you know. Anyways, um, Jesse's our speaker tonight, so... You'd like to walk me out. Hello, I'm Jesse. I'm an alcoholic. telling myself that maybe I can slip on by by uh, telling my story telepathically here. Uh, but yeah, I don't think that would work. Uh, when I was asked to do this, um, I didn't really hesitate to say no. I said yes. <laughs> but uh, the past two weeks have been um, really like emotional, a lot of anxiety, a lot of fear creeping up, and, um, to be honest, it's been a pretty bad experience. <laughs> um, I haven't liked that. I'm glad that it's here. I'm glad that I'm here. I'm glad that I can get up in front of y'all and do this because this is going to be like the biggest, the biggest part of my um, sobriety so far. Um, it's like something that I would never do, something that um, I would just try to run from, escape, and not feel these type of feelings because it's totally unnatural for me to get up here. It's totally unnatural for me to speak about myself. I like asking people questions, and, uh, you know, kind of deflecting from myself, so... Um, yeah, I, this is a good opportunity for me. I'm glad I accepted it. Um, so I was born in uh, 1972 in Ashikaga, Japan. My dad um, was in the Air Force and <coughs> met my mother over in Japan. Uh, I don't really have any memories from there because from there we moved to Hawaii for a year and to Austin, Bergstrom Air Force Base, like in 1974. So my first memories are basically with my mother and father at this uh, apartment complex. I remember my third birthday clearly. And you know, no real troubles. Um, let's get forward to like elementary basically and uh, my friends were good I was really in touch with my inner child and you know nothing I, was, <laughs> I wasn't um, shy or bashful I was just being myself I didn't really have too many thoughts going on I was just going along with the flow and you know those are some of my best memories to be honest and now I can get in contact with that but um not until um, about age five did I start to be aware of what was going on around me and like and 
thinking to myself, what's really going on here? Um, my father was awesome. He was always there for me. And almost to a fault, definitely to a fault. He was my biggest enabler. But um, my mother kind of just seemed so distant. Her being Japanese and most likely a cultural thing, um, she just seemed checked out, not really there. Always present, but like it just made me wonder what's really going on. And growing up, I would compare her to my friend's mothers, which, um, yeah, didn't really add up because you know, I didn't have any friends that were really Japanese. <laughs> um, but yeah, I went to school here. I went to Cook Elementary on the north side. Um, and there were some good experiences. Uh, up until, like, my friends were good. I had my own little, like, subdivision of friends. And uh, up until the point where, I guess, busing became a thing, uh, I was, like the integration thing. Um, I felt a connection until, you know, I got separated from my friends. And um, that along with my mother, and I got this sense of her being just depressed all the time. Um, my father was most likely cheating on her at the time, and they were going through divorce like questioning it and like it was a possibility and I was just yeah I didn't know what to think and I'm my only child I don't have any brothers or sisters so there was nobody really to talk to the communication gap was pretty big um, my mother would never talk about like her past or she wouldn't really trip on the future really. she was just a present person and the direction she'd give me were like just to do it, basically. Um, she was going through like, learning a whole new language, going to school, holding down a job, so she was never really around much. And my father was basically doing the same thing, although he was there for like sports, he'd always coach my like soccer teams or baseball teams. And just a uh, good guy. He was my best friend for sure. Um, but yeah, the busing thing just like kind of threw me off. It had like this effect on me where, um, yeah, I got outside my skin. Like I didn't feel comfortable inside it. So I was seeking out attention and uh, trying to be accepted in a new environment, which was uh, all new to me and it didn't come natural. And I think just getting out of that inner child produced that. So, yeah, after that, um, my mother and father, my mother, I took it that she was depressed for my father's infidelity type shit, but um, also, like, these memories just came back to me recently. <coughs> she had some miscarriages at the time, so I, I just became aware of that, it just kind of popped up, and it explains a lot, like, she really wanted for me to have siblings, and, you know, it wasn't really for her, it was for me, and have some people around me growing up that I could relate to and talk to, but, um, it didn't happen, 
So, um, we, after that, after my busing incident, we decided to up and move to Washington, Tacoma. And, you know, that was just the added effect of me not feeling comfortable. Like, I needed to seek out some attention and to fit in somewhere. And the whole mm -hmm. Japanese thing and American thing, I just couldn't relate. I felt awkward and not, yeah, a fit to anybody. And growing up watching, uh, like, war movies with my father and mother, um, basically, like, the Japanese against the American was kind of confusing. Um, I didn't know which side to root for. <laughs> and it was usually the Americans who won all the time. But, uh, but my mom would be sitting there and watching it and, like, just totally taking it in. And, yeah, she didn't really have any judgments or opinions about anybody, which was, I don't know, she was just, like, this Holy Spirit. I got a picture of her right here for my notes to be with me and my God. Um, so, yeah, we moved to Washington, and <coughs> I was seeking out some, yeah, acceptance and some attention, and I wasn't really participating in school. Um, I made friends. It was no problem, but um, I just didn't feel right. And I think something happened there that blocked me from... Uh, like, being okay in my skin, obviously. Um, so, I'm just going to fast forward a little bit. Um, I had girlfriends there, and, uh, like, the biggest one that stands out is a, um, a girl across the street who, I guess, was typical, like, stoner chick. I guess this was the fifth grade. And, uh... <laughs> I thought that was cool. I thought, like, you know, by that time, I was kind of in the Duff Leopard, like, quiet ride. <laughs> but, um, things didn't work out well between us. She ended up, like, kind of kidnapping my dog, which was a puppy. And, uh... Yeah, it didn't work out too well. Eventually, she, it got ran over. And I was super resentful for her, and she hooked up with this cooler stoner dude and wanted to have him kick my ass and all this shit. But, um, <laughs> um, yeah, I sought out just other relationships that didn't really work out. I was just seeking out, you know, some type of love that I wasn't getting at home. Um, but I guess like in sixth grade, I took a trip to Sacramento. Like my family was just consisted of my mother and my father. Um, I had relatives in Japan, which I've only visited twice. I met my grandfather once, was my first visit. I was in first grade. Um, he was older, I think he was like 50 when he had my mother. and. You know, I didn't. I haven't really ever gotten to experience my roots, the culture of the Japanese. So there's some kind of yeah block there too that I think I'm missing out on that I'd like to connect with, and it's still a possibility. But my father's side, they live in Maine or California, so it's equally spread out, really far apart from each other, and we never really had a close connection. 
But on this trip to Sacramento, I got to hang out with my cousin, who I've hung out with a couple times, and he's... Like, I looked up to him, because he was in high school at the time, I think I was in sixth grade, and um, his lifestyle at the time consisted of, like, partying a lot, he listened to some cool music, he had a really beautiful girlfriend, and um, I just thought, I went out and partied with him, actually, and... I think I snorted. I'm sh pretty sure it wasn't crank, but I think it was vibram. <laughs> yeah, I didn't really feel any effects from it. But I started smoking at the time. Actually, before that, my dad always smoked, and he would sneak smoke, and I'd see like empty cigarette packs. But I'd pick up butts from the street and just start smoking them. But yeah, he smoked, my cousin, and party, drink, and yeah, just the whole music appeal and certain style he had was just appealing that California, hella cool type flair. Um, so that was like what I set out to be, you know? That was like what I wanted. And went back to Washington, ended up moving back to Austin in seventh grade, or eighth grade actually. And uh, it was like 1986, if I remember. And um, from there, got into skateboarding and proceeded to like seek out people who I could identify with that would like fit my, you know, thought of coolness or whatever. Um, and yeah, I, my dad, actually my first drink of alcohol was with my dad, it was in Tacoma and yeah, fifth grade. And he this, did this on purpose, just to show me like what being really fucked up and drunk was like. He gave me some wine and then some rum, I think, just to like definitely, you know, feel the effects. And all I remember was just spinning. My friend who was with, the, with me at the time, I knew he passed out and woke up in a pool of vomit and it was, yeah. It wasn't fun, and I remembered that clearly, but, you know, it didn't add up later, obviously. Um, so, yeah, back here in 1986, I um, got into the scene. Uh, like, I remember going to <laughs> Depeche Mode and uh, <laughs> Book of Love in 1986 at the City Coliseum. I thought it was the coolest thing ever. Um, and from there, I was in eighth grade. I kind of made some friends. I was kind of new in Austin. This was in Pflugerville. And ninth grade, I started going to high school. Got more friends. And I kind of got in with the freak, punk, skater type crew. Um, and it was good. It was like I had a good bond with those people. I felt at home and a part of felt good but <laughs> it grew to a point where we started going downtown on 6th street these little clubs and uh, mainly like curfew backstreet sanitarium just freak clubs basically with lots of drugs and um, I started befriending all these people from high schools around Austin which yeah just like 
it wasn't a fellowship, it was just a group of fucked up people that could <laughs> identify with each other. And we experimented with lots of drugs, with alcohol, <laughs> mainly alcohol, ecstasy, coke, and acid. And yeah, it was like an experiment for sure. I just was curious and down to try something out. And, you know, it was more just being with a group of people that were doing it, so I just went along. Um, but weed became like my go-to with a little bit of alcohol, but I became the biggest weed head. And uh, always dabbling on the weekends, Thursday through Friday, Sunday. Like going out to 6th Street and partying with my friends. I managed to slip through school, like doing the bare minimum. Like I had to go to summer school every summer. <laughs> and I actually had to go an extra semester uh, high school to graduate. But I did it. Um, and yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I graduated, kind of checked into college for a minute, um, didn't really work out, I ended up going to Hawaii, and uh, like that was the longest term sobriety I had, I stayed there for three months, helped uh, I helped uh, my friend build his dad's house, <clears throat> but I was smoking weed all the time, every day, all day. Um, <laughs> but it felt good. I get back and uh, just get back into what I was doing. And uh, it just, yeah, it came to a point, I think it was 1993, where I was still curious about everything. The only drug I really hadn't tried was um, heroin which, uh, you know, I thought was, if I do that shit, I'm like, definitely got a problem because I would never stick, stick a needle in my arm or, you know, like, that was the lowest of lows. But um, I, it was presented to me one night, thanks to uh, a dear friend who was <laughs> in this room, actually. <laughs> a group of people and it was to be honest it was like out of this world it was a good experience <laughs> even though it consisted of basically us just nodding off on the couch or going out back to throw up <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> but yeah for some reason it felt right to me and uh, from there it just progressed I was snorting it at the time but it progressed to like a weekend thing progressed to like doing it almost every day, um, whatever comes along with it, stealing, lying, cheating, manipulating, and it just reached that point to where, you know, I had to fix it up a different way, I had to get some satisfaction instantly, and I knew definitely that I was an addict at that point, you know, um, like for me at least, uh, it was a problem that I had to either cope with or find some way out of, and that's like 
beginning of like my bright ideas and how I could fix this problem, which I stayed into for a while. Like this is 1994, 1995. And it just progressed to the point where um, I went through relationships. Um, I would always seek out the like next girlfriend before I broke up with the current girlfriend. <laughs> um, and I would always try to find somebody that at least, you know, fit me and did what I did. And if they were like too good to me, I would shove them away for some reason. Like, um, I wasn't cool with having a motherly figure for some reason. I just wasn't comfortable. And I think that has to do with my mother. I didn't want to be my mother's son growing up um, because, I don't know, that's the issue that I'm still trying to figure out. Um, but just admitting it is like a big part of my recovery right now. Um, yeah, so no relationships there was a lot of long-term ones but I didn't have too many like sexual experiences I got a low number basically is what I'm saying being honest speaking from the heart yeah <laughs> so yeah I I mean, it brings me to this one point where uh, I was, like, definitely in the benzos, like, Rofenol, Rivetrols, Xanax, Valiums, all the good stuff. And I had lots of friends who would participate going over the border. And, <laughs> and this one night, my uh, current girl, like, it was 1997, but um, we were at Kirby Lane, and... <laughs> Uh, she was doing a drug deal, and I was sitting at the window watching it all go down because um, she went to meet the people she was selling these bottles to. And she proceeded to, like, yeah, get in her car. I saw her, like, just rush to her car all of a sudden, and I, I saw the car that she was making the deal to just take off. It's uh, 35th Street, Kirby Lane. Um, and I think she just took off, like, chasing the guy. And for some reason, I saw him. I was just sitting there. I didn't know what to do, so I got up, just ran out. I knew they'd probably make the block. It's like that little triangle block. And I just ran out to the, the street, hoping they'd be coming up. And I was just running off pure adrenaline. I was so pilled out and just drunk that, yeah, I... Uh, went out to the street and tried to wave down the car that was running from my girlfriend. I didn't notice at the time uh, until I yeah, came to, but she was rear-ending him the whole time. And uh, as I just took one step out in the street and to try to wave down this car, but next thing I know, I woke up in the EMS and... Uh, didn't really know what was up. I had these two really huge bumps on my head and lots of road rash, separated shoulder. But um, 
apparently what happened, she was right behind him with her lights off. She clipped me with the edge of her forerunner, and yeah, just, I guess they were going like 35, 40 miles an hour. And um, I didn't really blame her for that, you know, what I blamed her for, and it was like one of my biggest resentments was that she never wanted to talk about it, she never wanted to um, say sorry, she just wanted to like pretend like it never happened, and like her, the only thing she'd really say about it was super mean, but she said, didn't your mother ever teach you how to cross the street? But but the really cool thing, like, since I got sober, um, we still hang out. She was a person I called when I was in jail that would still talk to me. She was, like, you know, she was there for me, but... When I got sober, we were just eating at that same restaurant, and it just happened to be like it wasn't planned or anything. I was with a other good friend who was a counselor and had a long-term sobriety, and he just has this way of bringing out like people's deepest feelings and making them presentable, and it just happened that... She actually got super emotional and cried and just told me her side of the story and how fearful she was and uh, her experience, which I'd never heard before. And there's this, this overwhelming sense of just gratification and love that, and just a relief to hear it, you know. It was a really awesome experience and she was like making amends to me, which, you know, was a different view of amends for me. Like, I was already gone through a couple amends by that point, but it was just a super awesome experience. And anyways, back to my story um, of how I used... um, So throughout the times, I would uh, dabble in, like, maybe going to the doctor I think around 2000, there was like this cocktail out to get rid of um, your withdrawal symptoms. And that's when basically Buprenex was uh, introduced. I, I think it was called, um, I forget the name actually. But it was Suboxone, but only the main ingredient that helps you detox. I tried to use that to get off um, my heroin addiction and it worked but you know I didn't have any type of uh, spirituality or any idea of what these rooms offered so that just road continued for so long I tried to relocate Um, I tried to just I actually tried to accept that I was going to be an addict for the rest of my life but you know that's just there was something calling me that said that that was not me that there was something better for me out there I still had some hope um and yeah I got on methadone and you know I thought that that might work out but I would see all these people, like long-term methadone (coughs) addicts, and 
Yeah, it didn't look too promising. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Uh, yeah, like I tried to think that it could be alright. Like there's some successful heroin addicts out there, like far and few between. But yeah, uh, those thoughts were just my way of thinking that it would be alright for me to... <coughs> proceed in my addiction, but it's not. So I sought out in 2008 um, this treatment center because I was really desperate, and this was in uh, Canaan, Connecticut, and it was a cool spot. It was $3,000 at the time. Um, they had like a labyrinth, they had a sweat lodge, it had like art classes and all this fancy bullshit stuff but um it was a 30-day treatment and I went there basically just cold turkey and uh it was awful but the people there were awesome and it just gave me an idea of the steps and what they presented and the possibilities um but yeah I still was obsessing about getting back to Austin and calling up my dealer and just, yeah, that's all I pretty much thought about and that's the first thing I did when I got home um, and that kind of went on, you know, I went through so many detoxes thinking that, oh, maybe three days will put me on track to uh, figuring this out it didn't um, <laughs> uh, and <clears throat> I OD'd a couple times in that period. I had some near-death experiences. Uh, I saw friends pass away, and it just became a lot more real what the disease does to you. Um, I really was uncomfortable. And, uh, I was tearing down the people around me. I mean, my mother, I kind of hid everything from her, which my dad assisted me in. Like, he was the best sugarcoater and manipulator, and I think I got that from him, obviously. Um, <clears throat> but he was always there for me. I could tell him the truth, and he wouldn't really judge me. So I took advantage of that, and he hated to see me suffer and be sick, so, um, I went in and out of treatment centers, I tried Suboxone, methadone maintenance a couple times, um, <laughs> looking at the thing. and yeah, it was just a miserable story, uh, I can tell you one of my most embarrassing moments, um, just getting vulnerable, but uh, I was trying to relocate and um, to Sacramento to live, and I was packed up <laughs> and ready to move, but of course, you know, before I got on the road trip, I had to um, score some more drugs, and I think I was in Kyle at the time, 
and uh, I made up some excuse like I was going to go to the store and uh, it wasn't Kyle what was it uh, Caldwell it was Caldwell and uh, I made up some excuse like I had to go to the store and get some cigarettes but I drove to Kyle which is like yeah, a, <laughs> 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 um, to score some drugs and uh, after I scored, I was super excited, couldn't wait to get to the nearest bathroom to do my thing. But I took this big S turn and uh, didn't account for all the weight in the car. <laughs> uh, and I ended up just losing control and like rolling the car seven times and ended up like in this big S farm field. But. <laughs> Yeah, like, I didn't have my seatbelt on. My instincts just told me to spread eagle on top of the roof <laughs> as it was rolling. And everything was cool, you know? I got, I had to break the window to get out. But I looked back, and there was this, like, trail of debris, like, hundreds of yards long. And it was, um, yeah, it was like, okay, like, what do I do? Um, the next thing I know, like, EMS the police and the fire truck show up and let me tell you the first thing though that I did was make sure like I knew that my dope was still there <laughs> yeah. that's like all I cared about um, and it was actually never moved it was still in the ashtray so I didn't have to search too long to find it but um yeah I just sat there like not knowing what to do because I was in the middle of nowhere and the, everybody showed up and I was like, yeah, I was in a spot. I thought, this doesn't look so good. <laughs> but, uh, all right. So, yeah, my girlfriend and I were planning to move, and there was just a trail of debris, all our stuff. And I think the fire, one of the firemen walks up to me, and he's got something in his hand. And uh, <laughs> it was a big purple dildo. <laughs> <laughs> pretty embarrassing, but I think I uh, used it to my advantage. I automatically said, of course, that's not mine. <laughs> that's my girlfriend. Um, of course, like, that just totally distracted everybody, and it was just like a big laugh fest. So, it made everything, you know, everything cool. And uh, it was a big distraction, needless to say. So, yeah, I just called up my dad to come and get me. I called my girlfriend and said, Yeah, I don't think I'm going to make it back tonight. Um, but, yeah, of course, the first thing I did was go to the bathroom and use. And my dad, like, knew everything. Like, I could not withhold any secrets from him. Like, no matter how much I lied, I knew that he knew what I was doing. He would take me to get to score. Like I said, he was my biggest enabler. He actually was friends with my dealer. Not friends, but he got weed from her. <laughs> so it was a weird situation. Um, but yeah, that brings me basically to treatment, you know? I was seeking out many, many treatments and never got down with the steps. It was 30-day treatments. And um, 
I never really fully detoxed or withdrew, you know? Um, it was awful. So recently, two years ago, um, my mother was diagnosed, this was probably three years ago, but she was diagnosed with stage four cancer. And <clears throat> I kind of just knew that something had to happen. That, um, I always wanted it for myself, but that just gave me more encouragement to do it, you know. So, um, I was in treatment. Actually, my mom called up a friend and uh, asked for some guidance, and he suggested that I go to this treatment center, uh, which was like a big book boot camp. It's called TLR and um, The Last Resort. Um, I went, like my stay was going to be three months and at the time I was doing speedballs and uh, benzos with a lot of alcohol because yeah, I just had to add stuff to make me feel the euphoria of being fucked up because heroin just made me not sick anymore mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I went to TLR and, uh, it took me a while, um, but they got me into the steps. The first step consisted of like over 600 questions and basically you're just writing out the first couple chapters, you know, and, uh, you know, they were really into it. Yeah, that was the most I've gotten into the big book steps and feeling a part of something new the fellowship um I need to take a drink <laughs> and so um after 45 days this is going to be my first step experience it's like I don't really after that uh, getting hit by the car, I had some head trauma, so I think that's played a role in like me not clearly remembering things. That in 27 years of doing heroin, <laughs> um, but um, 45 days, I got a little mental clarity. Um, but at the whole time, my mother uh, hospice started becoming. They came around and she was reaching that point to where it wasn't looking so good, obviously. She had actually come to visit me in treatment, which she just wanted to take the opportunity to see me one last time and say goodbye and just let her know that she was cool. All she wanted for me was to be sober. And this was like, at home because I thought she wanted me to be so much more and that she expected so much more from me. But to have her show up in this frail state, like, it really wasn't her. It was just like this, you know, her, a slimmed down skeletal version of her. Um, and all I could do was just cry. Like, I couldn't really talk to her. I just held her hand and looked at her. And it was, uh, it was powerful. But 
Uh, 45 days into it, I uh, kind of manipulated my way. Like, I didn't straight out ask the treatment center to let me go see my mother one last time because I'd already seen her. But I felt like I made needed to make amends to her. By that time, I was on my amends. And she was number one. And, like, time was dwindling down. So the opportunity was there but you know I knew in the back of my head I still had reservations like if I go out and visit her there's an opportunity for me to use you know um so I let them make the decision basically but I knew they couldn't say no so um and there was conditions, of course, like it was like a six-hour total round-trip visit from like Rosanke, which is in between Smithville and Bastrop, back to Pflugerville, where my parents lived. So I had to get like a sober chaperone, sober coach, and uh, yeah, they arranged it, and he just happened to be one of my best friends. So... Um, I go to visit my parents, and as soon as I walk in, I found out, you know, I was expecting to see my two dogs who I had for the past 14 years, and were like my go-to because I'd isolated at that point for since like 2003. I did all I went out to do, or all I did was go out to get drugs and go back home. You know, partake. Uh, so I walk in and find out my dogs have been put to sleep, mm-hmm. and that um, just—I knew they were struggling, and uh, the end was near. But um, I wasn't expecting that, and uh, you know, I kind of was um, really resentful at my father for not telling me. But considering that my mother was also dying, I think, you know, obviously he uh, did what he did. And he didn't want to see them suffer also. He was having to take care of my mother and my sick dogs. So it was a lot to ask for him. But so I proceeded, you know, I was like, yeah, that's pretty fucked up. But my mom, I just tried to focus on my mother. And um, it actually, I got to sit down and talk with her. I didn't really, like, get into all, like, my side of the things and what I did. But basically, I just let her know that you are my mother, that I am your child. And I love you, like, I've always loved you. And you're like, um, you're right here. You're with me right now. She's, like, right in front of me. Um, and it was like this is like she never really talked about herself but there is a painting in the room um, which I had seen growing up like the whole time it was of a sunset um, bright red yellow and blue colors and uh, I never like asked or inquired like who had done it um but for some reason, I looked at it while I was talking to her, and I asked, like, who did that painting? 
and she said she did, you know. Um, I don't know, like, I think that's my big block that I have, that, like, communication for me is really something that I can grow from and uh, get outside myself because my thoughts can drive me crazy. Um, but yeah, it was super emotional and I didn't want to feel those feelings. Like everything went well, but still I had this, this overwhelming, overwhelming feelings of just wanting to escape and not wanting to feel. And there's, so in the back of my head, I had, my dealer was so good that she would go above and beyond to make her money. You know, she would meet me anywhere. She would do anything to, yeah, make some money. And for some reason, uh, I remembered her number. I wasn't sure, but it was in the back of my head, you know. There's that possibility there. And um, I just reached out and gave her a ring and arranged for her to drop some stuff off. And this is with, you know, my sober chaperone who knows me in and out. But it just unfolded so coincidentally that, uh, I don't know, I think God was in his way, in his way, just making this happen because I didn't realize how fucked I was. Um, but so, yeah, I snuck off to the next house, uh, retrieved the drugs in the trash can that she had dropped off for me. And she knew I'd just pay her later for it. Um, and yeah, I got lit for sure. Um, I did a speedball and of course, as I walk out of the bathroom, people notice that I'm a little itchy, um, fidgety, I can't stand still. And it was awful. Oh, shoot. So yeah. Um, that's like proud for stuff. That's what I do. I don't, all I thought I was thinking about was myself. And uh, I said the biggest fuck you to my parents, to my friend, to everybody. I went up and got back into treatment. And I actually wrote another four step down. And I included myself because I think I really beat myself up a lot on, on my biggest worst enemy. And from there, I got back into what I had to do. Um, I went to treatment, got out of treatment. I, I stayed for like 108 days. They let me stay a little longer <laughs> because they felt like it was on them that, was, uh, that I went back out and used. But um, yeah, I got sober on my own again because after that, my mom passed away. I was left at the house. My dad got remarried like right away. Um, he moved to California. We got some distance between us, which was the best thing ever because he's my biggest neighbor but, and my best friend. He's not really my dad, which is weird. But uh, I got sober in a hotel room for over two weeks. I went on a vacation, spread my mom's ashes, and everything went well. I got back to Austin, I checked in the sober living, 
and for a month and then checked into another one which was more spiritual and uh, started coming to these meetings at Bolden which I'm so grateful for um, this is where the magic happened for me where I realized that there's a group of people out there that I can identify with who have gone through the same shit I've gone through and can totally relate. I'm not alone in this. And, oh, wow. That's like what I've always been searching for, um, just this feeling of oneness, a feeling that we're all connected, that we can get through this as long as we reach out and be vulnerable, be honest and open, willing to uh, do whatever it takes to not drink, to stay sober, to uh, help others. And it's an ongoing process. This is like a really big growing experience for me. Um, I'm grateful to have been asked to speak. And uh, yeah, I'm grateful for everybody that showed up. I'm grateful for just being alive. Like I have the design for living to just take each day as it comes. And you know, that's my, like, drug of choice now. And, yeah, I'm growing spiritually. I'm figuring out my own unique path. I have a problem trying to fit other people's paths and stuff, but, you know, we're all unique in our own way. And, uh, but we're all connected, for sure, too. And, yeah, I think time's up. Sorry, I kind of didn't get into the solution part. I lost track of time. This is my first time really telling my story. You did great. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Jesse.